Welcome to The Word at First Pres, the official podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. During the fall, we're going to be working through a series called God in Science. Each week, we're going to be exploring the various ways that God has revealed to us through the study and field of science. Our first reading this morning comes from the ninth chapter of Luke, verses 57 to 62, where Jesus has some rather interesting teaching on families. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But that one said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. So we are doing our sermon series, God and Science, and each week we're looking at the various ways that we see God revealed to us through the field and study of science. Today I would like to begin by actually talking about the scriptures that we just read. So we read two scriptures, one from the Gospel of Luke, the second from the Gospel of Mark. Now, you may not have noticed it, but they actually have the same theme to them. And what I want to do is I want to recap the scriptures just briefly and see if you can pick up on the theme of what's going on here. So the first scripture reading that we heard from Judy, Jesus, he's walking around and these guys keep coming up to him and they keep saying, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus has these interesting responses that he gives to each of these individuals. So the first person, he says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus gives this strange response. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you can follow me around all you want, but I have no home. The second of these is, he tells this guy, he says, I want you to follow me, and The guy, he says, but first, Jesus, I need to go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, I think this is horrible, but it's what he's saying. He's saying that basically your father's gone. There's nothing you can do about it. So stop focusing on the past and start looking towards the future. The third guy who comes up to him, he says to him, I'll follow you, but first, can I say goodbye to my family? And Jesus says, If your family is more important than me, 
then you have no part of my movement. So let's recap, make sure we all got these down here, okay? So, first one is, I have no home. The second one is, your dad's dead, get over it. And the third one is that I'm more important than your family. So, beyond the fact that Jesus is clearly being rather hostile towards these young men who are coming up to him and saying, I want to follow you, what's the other theme that you're seeing here? Well, clearly, I think what he's saying is that anybody who wants to be part of his movement, he has the expectation that they're going to cut ties with their family. And you can actually see this in the second scripture we read from Mark. So in that scripture, Jesus, he's in the middle of this huge crowd of people, and his family is trying to come in to see him. In the crowd, they tell him, they say, hey, Jesus, just so you know, you know your, your mother, your brother, your sisters, they're out there looking for you. And Jesus, he looks around and he asks the question, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he says, pointing to all of them, here are my mother and my brother and my sisters. In that verse, Jesus explicitly rejects his biological family and he expects the members of his movement to do the same. Who is Jesus' family? The members of his movement, the people who are following him. That's his new family. So the question I want to pose to you this morning is, why does Jesus have this expectation? I mean, it's a strange expectation, don't you think? Why does he want the people who follow him to clearly cut ties with their family? Well, there are three possible explanations for this. I'm going to go through each of them so that you know what they are, and then we're going to kind of delve deeper into one of them. So the first explanation is actually something that I talked about two years ago when I was going through my Gospel of Mark series. You all probably remember it already. I'm sure it's coming to mind. (laughs) But I'll rehash it for you just in case you've forgotten about it. So in the Gospel of Mark series, I explained to you that Jesus more than likely was known as an illegitimate child in his community. Now the reason why we know this is because of the way that he was referred to in the Gospels. So, for instance, you, in first century Palestine, you are always referred to by your father's name. So, my father's name is Robert. So, I would have been called, if I lived back then, they would have said, hey, look, that's Alex, son of Robert. Because you didn't have last names like we do today. So, the identifier was always members of your family. And if that wasn't clear, if there's a lot of guys, Alex was son of Robert, they would then add on names like your grandfather, your great-grandfather. That's why in the Bible you see they refer to it the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? This, you have these three family names that are linked to it. That's how you knew who people were. But in the Gospels, Jesus is always referred to by his mother's name. He's called Jesus, son of Mary. Now, in Jewish culture, you were only referred to by your mother's name if you were born out of wedlock. It was something you carried with you for your whole life. Now, being a child who's born out of wedlock, being an illegitimate child, that would have followed him his entire life. He would have grown up as an outcast in his own community. He would have been shunned by members of Nazareth. And even more importantly, he wouldn't have had access to good education, assuming there was any in Nazareth. He wouldn't have had access to good jobs. And most importantly, he wouldn't have had access to good marriages. Because no father in his right mind is going to marry off his daughter to an illegitimate child like Jesus. 
So one of the reasons why Jesus might seem so anti-family in these verses that we read is that the traditional path to marriage and family may not have been accessible to him. Do you see what I'm saying? We're on the same page. Okay, that's explanation number one. Number two has to do with a certain phenomena that was occurring in the early church. So we as Americans, we take for granted that there is a separation between church and state. If you're an American, that does not necessarily mean that you are Christian, right? You can be American and be any religious identity. You can be Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu. You can be nothing at all. It doesn't really matter because your religion has no bearing on your identity as a citizen of the United States. But in Jesus' day, that was not the case. In Jesus' day and time, your ethnic identity was part and parcel with your religious identity. So let me give you an example. Let's say you were ethnically Greek during Jesus' day. What that meant was, is that if you were ethnically Greek, you were going to worship the gods of the Greeks. And if you were ethnically Jewish, then you were going to worship the gods of the Jews. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? So your ethnicity defined your religious identity. You could not take them apart like we do today. So if you got in a time machine, you went back in time, you go to first century Palestine, and you walk around and you ask somebody, what's your religion? They would have no clue what you were talking about. Because there was no such thing as a religion, right? You didn't have that. You were just, you were ethnically whatever you were, and those gods just came along with it. And that's why scholars often say that Christianity is the first real modern religion. Because when Jesus came along, he said, well, if you want to be part of my movement, you just have to believe certain things. It didn't matter what your ethnicity was at all. Do you see what I'm saying? You following me so far? So your ethnicity, when you're, when you're with Jesus, doesn't mean a thing. And this had huge repercussions, huge consequences for these people who followed Jesus. Because what it meant was that if you rejected the religious part of your identity, you were rejecting your family. Because you couldn't separate them out. Like today, right, we, you could say you can, you can be Italian and not Christian, right? But back then, you couldn't separate those two things out. You can't hold one up and reject the other. If you reject one part of it, you reject the whole thing. And so what we're reading in the Gospels could be a reflection of the fact that the people who were converting to Christianity literally had to turn their backs on their families in order to do this because they were literally leaving behind their families of origin. You follow me on this? All right, that's explanation two. The last explanation, the last possibility, is that Jesus may have understood something critically important to the human condition, and that is this. That the more connected you are to your family of origin, the harder it is for you to grow into a healthy person. Now, I know that that will be hard for some of you to hear in here, but it is a reality today, it was a reality back then, that if you want to establish a healthy identity, that it is completely dependent upon your willingness to separate that identity from that of your family. In some circumstances, the only way that you can become a healthy person is if you sever the connection with your family 
and you make your own way in the world. Now, for those of you who grew up in very healthy families, you might be sitting there saying to yourself, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I completely reject and leave behind these people who have given me everything? Is that what some of you are thinking? Okay. If you're thinking that, I want to get a little deeper into this. Because this is a hard thing for us to understand, and I want to tell you a story about a woman named Ellen Baxter. And I think that her story is going to help us to understand why Jesus requires for people who are part of his movement to reject their family and leave them behind. So, Ellen Baxter, she was a student at Bowdoin College in the early 1970s. She was studying psychology, and she had a real desire to want to help people who had mental illness. This is very important to her. And the reason why is because her mother had severe mental illness, and her mother had been sent to a psychiatric hospital after having a psychotic episode, and she came out of that hospital, she was worse than when she went in. So when she came out of that hospital, she was disabled and she was in a wheelchair. She couldn't go around. Whereas when she walked in, she could literally walk and she was semi-functional. And so she had this idea. She thought, what if I fake that I have a mental illness and then I get accepted into one of these institutions and then I can sit back and I can watch and figure out which of these therapies are actually beneficial and which ones aren't doing any good. Now that sounds like a little bit of a crazy idea, doesn't it? But her professor was like, hey, that sounds great, let's do it. We're gonna have a good time. So they find a psychiatrist in town who's willing to write her a note that she has mental illness, and she gets accepted to Augusta State Hospital. And she's gonna be there for seven days, and she's watching them perform all their therapies, and what she realizes is that none of them Zero. Zip. None of them are giving any benefit to the patients who are in there. Because this is what she sees. This is her own words. She says, I'm looking around and I'm seeing these people and they're watching television, they're staring out the window, and they're waiting for bells to ring. Ding! Time to get in the medication line. Ding! Time for your morning snack. Ding! She's like, you could just see the humanity of these people evaporating in front of you. So she gets out of the hospital. She goes back to her professor and she says, there has got to be a better way. There's got to be something else going on that we can do for these people. And he says, I'm sorry, this is where we are. So she goes back and she starts looking through all the literature. She looks through historical literature. She looks through medical journals. And then she comes across the answer. And the answer is what this little place that is very unknown called Heal. Now Heal is actually found in Belgium. So Heal, we would pronounce it Giel, but it's, it's actually pronounced like healing. Like that's how we say it. Heal is this little town in Belgium where the villagers in this town, they manage and supervise the mentally ill who come to their town. These people literally have the mentally ill live with them. And these villagers, by the way, they are not psychiatrists, they are not psychologists, they're just normal people like you and me. Now Ellen Baxter, she was floored by this because she could not 
believe that these people would willingly accept people with very severe mental illness into their homes to live with them. And this wasn't for a short period of time either. These people would live with them for decades often. Now apparently, this tradition began back in the early 7th century with St. Dymphna. Now St. Dymphna, she was apparently martyred in the town of Hiel. And what happened was, after she was martyred, people from all over Europe, they started to come to this little town to seek healing for their mental illness. And what happened was, they would get there at the end of their pilgrimage, and they would stay with the families, the villagers, in the town. And of course, what would happen is, some of these people, they wouldn't leave. They just started to stay. To the point where, in the 1930s, a quarter of the population of Heal had mental illness. Now, Ellen Baxter, she could hardly believe that this was real. And so, she got a grant to get on a plane to go over there to check it out for herself because she was like, this has got to be made up. And she gets there. She travels to this town. She gets to the center of town. She goes to what's known as the OPS, O-P-Z, which is where all of the people with mental illness come into town. It's where they go initially. And they're not called patients, by the way. They're called borders, borders in the town. They come in there. They get diagnosed. They're given medication. And then they are placed with a family. Now, the families are the ones who Ellen Baxter was most interested in hearing about. Because these people, they were willing to take these folks in. And so she had one question for them. She was like, is it not burdensome to you and tiring and wearisome to take in these people with very severe mental illness into your house? And the answer across the board, she went to every family in this town. Across the board, 100%. The answer was no, not at all. Now she wondered, she seriously wondered, had she stumbled upon a race of angels? Like literally, she thought that these people were so nice. She did not understand why they thought this way. And so she's gone from house to house. She's trying to figure this out until finally it dawns on her. And she figures it out when she meets the Buttons guy. Now the Buttons guy is this fellow who's middle-aged, and every day when he wakes up, he puts on his shirt, and throughout the day, he nervously twists the buttons off of his shirt. And what's even more amazing than that is that every night, his host mother will take those buttons and sew them back on. Now, Ellen Baxter, when she heard this, She thought, this is such a horrible waste of this poor woman's time. And so she said, why don't you just sew it back on with fishing line? That way he can't twist the things off every day. And his host mother was almost offended at the idea. She goes, no, 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 you don't understand. You see, he needs to twist those buttons off. Twisting off those buttons every single day, it helps him. And so that's when Ellen Baxter realized that the reason why the people in Giel with mental illness, the reason why they were able to do so well, is because the philosophy of the villagers in the town was just to let them be. You just accept their behaviors for what they are. So even though those behaviors might be odd to us, they might be odd to the rest of society, they're not odd to them. They're not strange to them at all. if they need to sit there and twist off their buttons every single day, 
then that's what they need to do. And so their philosophy is you accept these odd behaviors and you don't try to change them. Now, you compare that and contrast that with what we do here in the United States with people who have mental illness. If you have mental illness in the United States, what we want to do is we want to fix you. We want to make you better, right? So what we do is we bring you in, we give you medication, which is the same thing they do over in Heal, and then from there we say, look, you need to stop all of these strange behaviors because they're socially awkward. They're not socially acceptable. You can't do those things anymore. But in Heal, what do they do? They say, you are who you are, you act the way you act, and we're going to work around that. And the result is that these people, they end up getting a lot better and they live relatively normal lives. Now remember, these are people with severe mental illness. Many of them work and they have romantic relationships, which here in the United States is extraordinarily rare for people who have severe mental illness. They don't work and oftentimes they have no relationships. They're basically just sitting around all day because they can't function. And that's when Ellen Baxter realized that there's a second part to this equation that she had not put into effect early on. She realized that it's not just a fact that they accept these behaviors for what they are. It's also the fact that these boarders are living with families other than their family of origin. There was a study done about 50 years ago by a man named George Brown. He was a sociologist over in Britain. And he followed these men who had severe schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia is when you hear voices in your head. So he followed these guys, and he wanted to see what happened to them. And what he found was that the men who had been treated in the hospital and released and were sent somewhere other than their homes with their families and their wives, that they did much better than those who were sent home to their families. In fact, those who were sent home had two to three times more probability of having a relapse, a psychotic relapse, than those who were sent to live with strangers or into other living circumstances. And the reason why is because those who went home to their families, they experienced three primary emotions from their family. The first is criticism, the second is hostility, and the third is emotional over-involvement. I'll give you an example from each of those in the study. So the first one is criticism. This is a direct quote. He doesn't eat breakfast, just morning coffee right away. Coffee, 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 smoke, 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 coffee, coffee. And then this is in parentheses, with a tone of clear dislike of the fact that this is what his son is doing on a habitual basis. <clears throat> the second one, this is hostility. She's very selfish. She doesn't care about anyone but herself. This is what she's saying to her daughter. The third is emotional over-involvement. It breaks my heart to see him suffering. I'd do anything for him if it would help. There's nothing I wouldn't do for that boy. Now what Brown found is that it was the last of these emotions. This one right here, the emotional over-involvement, which was the greatest trigger for relapse. Now what is emotional over-involvement? All it is is a deep desire to do what? To see you get better. That's all it is. And what he found out was that 
even if you didn't voice it like this, that even if it was in your tone of voice that you wanted that person to get better, that it could trigger a relapse. Now that is so counterintuitive, isn't it? Because you would think that if you go home and you're with people who love you and want you to get better and want to see you recover, that you would actually do better. But the opposite is true. The more you care and the more desperately you want someone to change, the irony is the more you prevent them from doing so. I'm going to say that again because that's so important that you hear this. The more you care, the more desperately you want someone to change, the more you cause them to actually stay exactly as they are. The reason why the people in Heal, the reason why they were able to recover, is because when they came to that town, those people in the village, they had no clue who they were. They had no idea where they had come from, what they were like. But you as a family member, right, you know what your son or your daughter or your father, your husband, your wife, right, all these things, you know what they used to be like, and that's what you want them to be again. And so you want them to get back to that state. But the people in Heal, they don't know any of that. They don't know who you are. They don't know what you used to be like. And so when you come to that town, you are who you are. You're literally accepted just as you are. And so if you come in and your behavior is you twist the buttons off of your shirt, then that's just what you do. And because they accept you so as you are, these people heal and they become better. Which brings us back to what Jesus was talking about at the beginning of this sermon. What did Jesus say? He says, if you want to be part of my movement, then you need to leave your family behind. And I know that some of you are sitting here saying, but my family gave me everything. Why would I want to leave them behind? And the answer is, because sometimes leaving your family behind is the only way that you can heal. I cannot tell you why Jesus needed to leave his family behind. I don't know for sure. But if the scriptures are to be believed, and particularly the Gospel of Mark, what we see is that Jesus' family, they did not understand what he was doing or why he was doing it. Do you remember what I told you in the beginning, how he was in this big crowd of people? Do you remember that? He's in this big crowd and his family's trying to get in. Do you know why his family's trying to get to him? Well, if you go back a couple of verses, you see that the reason why they're trying to get in there is because they think he's crazy. They think he's gone insane. And so they're trying to get in there because they want to get him out. His family loves him. They want to help him. They want to do the best for him. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knows that he needs to be around people who are going to accept him for who he is. He needs to be around people who aren't going to try to change him. He needs to be with people who are going to sit there and say, you think you're the son of God? Okay. That's cool with me. You can be the son of God. You see what I'm saying? My message for you today is actually extraordinarily simple. And I really need you to hear this. Oftentimes, it is easier for us to be family to people that we don't know, to strangers, than it is to be 
family to our biological kin. I will say that again. Sometimes it is easier for us to be family to people we don't know, to strangers, than it is for us to be family to those to whom we are related. And I think that's why Jesus set up the church in the way that he did. What does he want the church to be? He wants the church to be a family. And if you think about it, that's how it works. Like, look at all these people. In, like, look around at the people in here. Just for, like, actually do it. Look at them. Okay? You see all these people in here? You come together in this place. You don't know each other, right? People, you don't know where you came from. You don't know your background. But you come together and you accept each other for who you are. And magically, healing starts to occur all of a sudden. I have seen it happen over and over again in this church. It happens all the time. And I'll give you my family as an example. So you all know I have two sons. And I love my sons so much. I really do. But I so appreciate it when you all show them love. Because the truth is, you can love them in ways that I know I cannot. Now, if you take my son Elijah, my son Elijah, if you met him three years ago, for those of you who were here when we came, you would know that this kid would talk to nobody. Like, he was, he was just inside of himself. But the beautiful thing is, now, three years later, this kid, he cannot wait to come to church. He loves being here, particularly for family night. Like, that's his favorite night. And that's because of you all. It's because of the love that you all have shown him that he has changed into this different child. And I appreciate that. I really do. It means the world to me that you all love him so much. And that's what we're about here. I want you all to be able to look around at this church. I want you to say, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. May God help us to be that family to each other. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.